Thank you for joining us on the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org. This week's message is by Brian Candelo. All right. In Greek mythology, there is a story of a hunter named Narcissus, uh, a young man of extraordinary beauty. So much so that people were falling in love with him right and left. Now, there is a tremendous difficulty when you are extraordinarily beautiful. I do not know this by personal experience, <laughs> but so I've been told. And his life wasn't all that easy. As a matter of fact, when he was a young man, someone prophesied over him this. He will live to a ripe old age as long as he never knows himself. Which is a real vote of confidence, isn't it? Now, there's many different storylines, many different plot lines to this, but kind of the central theme of this story is that Narcissus was out one afternoon hunting in the woods, and he became thirsty. So he came upon a pool, and he knelt down to drink. And when he knelt down to drink in this pool, he saw the most beautiful thing that he'd ever seen in his entire life, his own reflection. And so he immediately fell in love with his reflection, which kind of brought up several problems. First, when he tried to dip something in to get a drink, it caused ripples in the pond and it ruined his reflection, so he couldn't do that. And then when he tried to back away from the pond, he noticed that this beautiful figure in the pond staring back at him disappeared. So he couldn't back away from the pond either. And he couldn't take a selfie and capture it forever either. So here he was, stuck, immobilized, completely in love with himself, but nowhere else to go. And as the story goes, he died of thirst. Right there, at the edge of the pond. Now there's a happy little story for your morning. (laughs) And we can shake our heads at the ridiculousness of Narcissus, because what you really wanna say to him is get over yourself. Take your hydro flask, dip it in the water, drink deeply and get out of there. You're being absurd. Because the thing was, he loved himself so much that it led to his demise. And it's not just a sad tale or a sad story that we can learn from. The really sad thing about that story is that kind of thing happens all the time still. And not that exact picture. We don't see a lot of people staring at themselves in pools of water. But what we do see are people getting into similar traps and coming to similar outcomes as they spend more and more time being obsessed with themselves. They lose the big picture. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about this idea that self-obsession leads to self-destruction. Self-obsession leads to self-destruction. And I believe that we know that that's true. And we understand what self-obsession is, especially in other people. We can see it clearly in other people. Maybe not necessarily ourselves. We don't want to apply that principle to our own lives because who's going to look out for me? I have to look out for number one. I have to take care of myself. I have to take care of my own needs. At least other people aren't going to to the level that I want them to. But the principle is still true. Self-obsession leads to self-destruction. And that's kind of where we're headed this morning. We're continuing our series, Connecting the Dots. We've been studying the book of Esther, and we've been talking about the fact that God is never specifically mentioned in the book of Esther, but despite appearances, God's at work. 
and we can connect the dots of what God's been doing. And, and this is kind of the story where we are so far. And so if I can just kind of sum up, these are the dots, even though God's name isn't mentioned, here's all the things that are moving us in a direction. There's a king over the entire empire. His name's Xerxes, and he's drunk one night, and he calls his wife to parade in front of all the nobles, and she says, no way. And he kind of deposes her, good for her for saying no, but he needs a new queen. So he holds a beauty contest. And the winner of that beauty contest is Esther. Now, Esther's a Jew. Nobody knows that, but that's going to be a big problem because there's this guy named Haman. He's the bad guy of the story, and he can't stand the Jews. And he wants to wipe them out, particularly because there's this guy named Mordecai, the good guy. You're already booing and yang. Good. He's, he's the good guy, and he's related to Esther, but Haman wants to wipe them all out, so he has this edict kind of put out there that on a certain day, all the Jews will get slaughtered, and this is kind of a bad thing for Esther and Mordecai, so they're plotting a plan, and Esther hosts this banquet with the king and with Haman, and they get to the end of this banquet, and the king says, what do you want? And she says, I want you to come back tomorrow to another banquet, and that's kind of where we are in this story. And we've been able to connect the dots from the beginning of the book, God's at work. In countless different ways, God is at work in this story, connecting the dots from thing to thing to thing. And I would also say this, in our own lives, God is at work. In countless different ways, we can connect the dots in our own lives. God's fingerprints are all over our lives, but we can miss it. We can miss it. We can get so stuck Looking at ourselves, we can get so immobilized, so enamored looking at ourselves that we miss God's hand at work. And this is what plays out in this passage. So we're going to be in Esther chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, would you turn there, please? You can grab one from the pew there. It's going to be on page 420. And uh, if you're using an app, we're going to be using the New Living Translation. That way you can follow along. Now, the story that we're going to read is a bit of an interruption in the narrative. Just before the passage we're going to read was the banquet. And Esther said, I want you to all come back tomorrow night to the next banquet. So it seems like when we would pick up our passage, we would be reading about the second banquet. We don't get there quite yet. This is a little bit of an interlude, building tension and suspense as we go. And as we read this passage, it's one of the most comically ironic passages in Scripture. When I read this passage that we're going to read this morning, I just know God has a sense of humor. I know that God is in control. I know God has a perfect sense of timing. And, and as we read the story, we've been very participatory in how we've been reading. So as people have been doing for thousands of years, we are cheering a little bit and we're booing a little bit. The name of Haman was so bad that the people throughout generations of reading this story didn't even want people to hear it. So if I said Haman, you would go, now nah, and hiss, feel free to hiss. It's a kind of a lost art. We don't hiss a lot anymore, but well, well played. Okay. Now, if I said Mordecai, yeah. yay, we would cheer. He's one of the good. If I said Esther, yeah. we would cheer. Now, here's just a little practice sentence to get us going. In this story, Mordecai yeah. continues his conflict with, yes, all right. Too, e too easy, right? All right. He's not here this weekend, although this is the live stream service, so who knows? All right, so Esther chapter 5, verse 9. We start with a boo, okay, just so we know. Haman, 
was a happy man as he, as he left the banquet. But when he saw Mordecai sitting at the palace gate, not standing up or trembling nervously before him, Haman became furious. However, he restrained himself and went on home. Then Haman gathered together his friends and Zeresh's wife and boasted to them about his great wealth and his many children. He bragged about the honors the king had given him and how he had been promoted over all the other nobles and officials. Then Haman added, and that's not all, Queen Esther invited only me and the king himself to the banquet she prepared for us, and she has invited me to dine with her and the king again tomorrow. Then he added, but this is all worth nothing as long as I see Mordecai, the Jew, just sitting there at the palace gate. So Haman's wife, Zeresh, and all his friends suggested, set up a sharpened pole that stands 75 feet tall, and in the morning, ask the king to impale Mordecai on it. <laughs> Sounds like you were cheering for that. <laughs> I understand you're not cheering for the impalement of Mordecai. When this is done, you can go on your merry way to the banquet with the king. This pleased Haman, and he ordered the pole set up. Now that night, the king had trouble sleeping. So he ordered an attendant to bring the book of the history of his reign so it could be read to him. In those records, he discovered an account of how Mordecai had exposed, exposed excuse me, the plot of Big Thana and Teresh, two of the eunuchs who guarded the door to the king's private quarters. They had plotted to assassinate King Xerxes. What reward or recognition did we ever give Mordecai for this? The king asked. His attendants replied, nothing has been done for him. Who is that out in the outer court? The king inquired. As it happened, Haman had just arrived in the outer court of the palace to ask the king to impale Mordecai, not that we're cheering for that, on the pole he had prepared. So the attendants replied to the king, Haman is in the outer court. Bring him in, the king ordered. So Haman came in and the king said, what should I do to honor a man who truly pleases me? Haman thought to himself, whom would the king wish to honor more than me? So he replied, if the king wishes to honor someone, he should bring out one of the king's own royal robes as well as a horse that the king himself has ridden, one with a royal emblem on its head. Let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials and let him see that the man whom the king wishes to honor is dressed in the king's robes and led through the city square on the king's horse. Have this official shout as they go, this is what the king does for someone he wishes to honor. Excellent, the king said to Haman. Quick, take the robes and my horse and do just as you have said for Mordecai the Jew. Seriously, that's awesome. That is so absolutely amazing. Leave out nothing you have suggested. So Haman took the robes and put them on Mordecai, placed him on the king's own horse and led him through the city square shouting, this is what the king does for someone he wishes to honor. Can you imagine? So great. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the palace gate, but Haman hurried home, dejected and completely humiliated. Absolutely. When Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends what had happened, his wise advisors and his wife said, since Mordecai, this man who has humiliated you is of Jewish birth, you will never succeed in your plans against him. It will be fatal to continue opposing him. While they were still talking, the king's eunuchs arrived and quickly took Haman to the banquet Esther had prepared. Here we go. Whew. Amazing story. 
And here's some of the dots that we can start to connect in this story. Haman bumps into Mordecai again, but he restrains himself and then he heads home and starts to whittle. He puts up a lawn ornament, kind of that's what we're saying, 75 feet tall. And then the king can't sleep. So he gets this bedtime story. It just happens to be a story about Mordecai. And then Haman just happened to be in the outer court at that time. And then Haman happens to be completely blind to the king's question. And as it turns out, Haman ends up leading Mordecai through the city. Awesome. What's the deal with Haman though? We're gonna focus on Haman this morning because Haman was promoted in chapter three. Aside from the king, he's the most powerful person in the entire empire. He's kind of the prime minister, but it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough for him. And so how did Haman miss out? Why couldn't Haman connect the dots? How come Haman just got stuck staring at himself? Why couldn't he see past himself? Well, because he was a narcissist. It's because he was completely self-obsessed. It was because he was so full of pride. He couldn't get past himself. And we know that pride is this excessive opinion of importance, of self, of superiority. The poet Coleridge says, pride is is when your head swells, but your mind shrinks. C.S. Lewis says, pride is a telescope turned backwards that magnifies self and makes the heavens look small. Lewis also said in his preface to Screwtape Letters, this is, this is pretty right on. He said, it's the ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration upon self, which is the mark of hell. It's an absolute preoccupation with self that's just ruthless and unsmiling and unsleeping. It's an endless ego calculation. Self-obsession is always asking these questions. Am I getting what I deserve? How does this make me look? Do people respect me? It's always calculation. It's always comparison. And we see it so plainly in the life of Haman. It's so obvious in his life. And it's so obvious in the lives of other people and not so obvious in our own lives. Because here's the thing. In our own lives, pride hides itself. Pride is the carbon monoxide of sin. You don't see it, you don't smell it, but it's so deadly. We know if we steal something, we know if we're cheating the system, but rarely do we know if we're being prideful. You see, we might not think we're prideful because we have such a low opinion of ourselves, but that can still be pride. You see, self-deprecation does not equal humility. A sense of inferiority does not mean that we're humble. We can always be so down on ourselves, whether it be our appearance or our abilities or our reputation, and still be just as prideful as someone who's really high on those things about themselves because we could still be very self-obsessed. We could always be thinking about ourselves in the areas that we're lacking. That can still be pride. And it's still ruthless and sleepless and unsmiling. And self-obsession in either one of those forms still leads to self-destruction. And so how do we notice this in our lives? What are some of the symptoms, some of the signs of self-obsession? We're gonna look at just three. This is not an exhaustive list, but we're gonna look at three things that we see in the life of Haman and maybe that we see in our own lives that maybe points out just a little bit of this self-obsession that gets us stuck, that's probably leading us down the path to self-destruction. And the first one we see, first symptom we see is fragile happiness. We see this in the life of Haman and, and happiness by nature is fragile. By definition, it's fragile because happiness is dependent upon circumstances and circumstances rise and fall. So people who make happiness their life goal also rise and fall. 
And we see this for Haman. It's short-lived. He comes fresh from this banquet with Esther. He's been at this place. It's just the king. It's just the queen and him. And he's got to bounce to his step. And he's singing, I'm on top of the world. And nothing can hamper that. And then he bumps into Mordecai and it's over. It's like flipping a switch. He's, he's woody when Buzz comes along. It's just not good in his world. As a matter of fact, he says later in that same chapter, all that I have is worth nothing. Nothing because this guy won't bow to me. He's so absolutely fragile. And it got me thinking, where do I see this show up in my life? Where do I have a fragility to my life and to my happiness? Where do things put me sideways? And it's usually just little things. I can be happy. I can be driving along and then somebody cuts me off and, and like really cuts me off. Or somebody, when you know the lanes are merging, drives all the way to the end and pulls in front. Or when you're at the grocery store and the line's long and you don't want to be there and you just want to be home. So you take your stuff and you finally get close and you put it on the conveyor belt and then the person in front of you pulls out like 500 coupons. And you go, oh man. And then when that's over, they pull out a checkbook and you're like, a checkbook? Did you get that in a museum? And then, oh. Or when your sports team loses. Isn't it interesting that a group of people that you've never met playing a sport that you probably never played can ruin your day, can ruin your happiness? Or you get a text that says, can we talk? Or you get that one particular email with that one particular criticism that then just begins to sit in your gut, nagging just below the surface and bye-bye happiness. You know, for Haman, it took just this one thing to kind of unravel all the good that had happened to him that night. How close to the edge is he? How fragile is he? And how much is that reflective of us? How many good days are wrecked for us by bad moments? We can have five minutes of frustration and it wipes out 23 hours of fantastic because we're fragile. Because why should we have bad moments? Don't you know who I am, God? And we can go from happy to hopeless, just like flipping a switch. And a lot of that's due to our self-obsession because we think everything should be all about us. And the interesting thing in this story is that nobody calls him out on this. He comes back and he starts telling everybody all the good things. He's bragging about it. And nobody says, okay, stop it. And I can get that his advisors and the people next to him didn't because he was a powerful man. But his spouse, come on. Spouses in the room. I mean, my wife, not that she would say anything, but if I'm picturing a sentence in my head, it would begin this way. Hey, Captain, you plan it. Tone it down a little bit. You're going to be fine. But nobody seems to call him out on this. It's crazy. You see, when we're self-obsessed, we get stuck looking at ourselves and we become so fragile and our foundation needs to be so much more than happiness. The second thing I see in the life of Haman is anger. We see explosions of anger out of him. He becomes furious. He builds a 75-foot sharpened stick in his yard. It's a disproportionate response. It's ridiculous and an impractical height. If you're going to impale somebody on a 75-foot pole, I don't even know how you, we don't even need to think about it. But it's almost as if he's saying, if you resist my remarkable authority, you will die a remarkable death. And too often, our anger is a disproportionate response to an offense. And it never stays localized. It never stays appropriately focused. It always intensifies and it always spreads. 
And we probably don't ever really even connect the dots between anger and self-obsession or anger and pride. But here's the thing, anger is never a primary emotion. Anger is always pointing at something else, usually something that's just below the surface in our lives, other significant insecurities. It's embedded in anger are the ideas of, I deserve this. I've been wronged. The world owes me. And usually you kind of follow anger down this path and get to the end and you say, that's not fair. Haman, with everything that he has, with everything going in his direction, still finds himself the victim. And victims always figure out ways to justify their anger. And that can be us. And now, is there good anger? Is there healthy anger? Is there righteous anger? Yes. And I realize that some of you in the room have just taken a deep breath and you've said, exactly, all of my anger is righteous anger. <laughs> and let me ask you a question. Is it really? <laughs> Is it, how do we know? What's a good question we could ask ourselves about our own anger? Are we always angry for ourselves or are we angry on behalf of other people? Now, can you be angry for yourself? Sure, but is it always about yourself? Are you angry because you didn't get something you deserved? And usually I don't mean possession, I mean respect or honor or promotion. Or in your anger, do you find yourself out of control? These things are still linked to self-obsession. Ephesians 4 warns us of this. Don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. We have to be careful. When we become out of control in our anger, we leave the door open and Satan comes in and we begin making bad decisions like trying to wipe out an entire people group because of a perceived offense or building a 75-foot sharpened stick in our yard. We begin to make bad decisions. So later on in this chapter, that's why it says you need to separate yourself from anger. You need to try and get rid of it in your life. There are times that it's okay to be angry, but anger can take us down the path to self-destruction. And maybe we ask ourselves this question. What do I do when I find myself powering up? You know those moments when you wanna have that phone call, when you wanna return that email, when you wanna have that conversation. What do you do when you find yourself powering up and who is it for? And what's the end game? And what's the goal? And I realize a lot of times in those moments, there's not a lot of rationality. So you might need to step back and look at those moments that there were outbursts of anger. Because anger tends to be all about self and self-obsession leads to self-destruction. And both of these first two things are really indicative of kind of the big problem that Haman was having. And here it is. He was drinking from a fountain that never satisfies. He was drinking from a fountain that never satisfies. Why wasn't it enough? Why couldn't he connect the dots and get to a good place? Why couldn't he step back in his life and be like, oh yeah, there's, there's a lot of good here. It's because he wanted to be defined by things that you can never get enough of. When he goes back home and he begins to tell his tale of woe to his people, here's what he says. He lists the things that define him. He lists the things that give him value, the things that are most important to him. He, great wealth, his many children, the honors that he has, 
that he's been promoted, that he's over all of these other people. This is what he's saying. He's keeping score. Look how good I am. But the problem is he's keeping score in a game that has no winners. He's keeping score in a game that is never going to take him any place. We can't build our lives on money and stuff and recognition and, and status because they will never satisfy. There's never enough. Someone is always going to be more beautiful. Someone is always going to be more powerful. And power is always changing hands. Someone's always going to be smarter. There's always going to be new knowledge and new stuff and new people to impress. And no matter what we think we have on our score sheet, someone else's score sheet is always going to be higher than our own. And so we find Haman left always aspiring but never arriving. Always desiring but never feeling deserving. Because he's giving his life to things that will never satisfy. He's holding on to false idols. Isaiah 44 has a great verse. It's about false idols. And he says, the poor deluded fool feeds on ashes. He trusts something that can't help him at all. Yet he cannot bring himself to ask, is this idol that I'm holding in my hand a lie? You see, everything that Haman was holding in his hand was a lie. Everything that he thought was going to give him value just left him longing for more. And we kind of need to reframe that in our head. And maybe we could reframe it this way. If we could think of these things as salt water. You see, this looks like fresh water, but I've poured about half a cup of salt in here. Shook it up really well so that you couldn't tell. But if you drank this, it would not satisfy you. As a matter of fact, you could down this whole container of liquid and be thirstier than when you started. And it's kind of crazy to me to think that people could be in the middle of the ocean and die of thirst. With all of that liquid around, you see, when you drink salt water, the more you drink, the thirstier you get. The more you drink, the more dehydrated you get, and eventually you pass away. And that was what Haman was doing. He was drinking deeply from power and respect and recognition and status, but it was all salt water in his life and he couldn't get enough of it and he kept trying to drink more and more and more and he was drinking from a fountain that was never gonna satisfy and instead of being happy, he was hopeless. And church, if we drink deeply from anything else but Jesus, we're always gonna be thirsty. When we get caught looking at ourselves in the pond, there's just not enough to drink. You can't quench that thirst with anything. You can't quench that deep need with anything but Jesus. That's why he says in John chapter 4 when he's talking to the woman at the well, I am the living water. And when you drink deeply from me, you will never thirst again. And so we can get caught drinking from the wrong fountain. And Haman didn't see it because he couldn't get past himself. You see, self-obsession never connects the dots. Self-obsession doesn't see what God is doing. It sees what God isn't doing. It sees where God is coming up short. It sees that God isn't doing enough. And so the dots never get connected. We could look at this picture. Haman would look at this picture and we'd all go, yeah, it's a star. And Haman would connect the dots this way. He goes, somehow, somehow this is still all about me. But his self-destruction was coming. His self-destruction was very close at hand. And in this story, how quickly he went from 
from self-obsession to humiliation, right? How quickly he went from these grand fantasies of what the king should do for him to the grim reality of him walking through the city going, this is what the king does. And it's over. It's over for him. And his wife says it's over and all his people say it's over and you're never going to succeed in what you're going, trying to do. Your self-obsession, Haman, has led to your self-destruction. And we don't want to get caught there. You see, the king posed this question, what should I do to honor someone who pleases me? And in closing, I just want to give us three ways that we can be a people that please the one true king. What can we do in our lives? Three quick things. First, seek the approval of the eternal king. In chapter six, when Haman posed this question, or excuse me, when Xerxes posed the question, Haman could have spoken of a lot of different things. He could have said, I have more money. You, if you want to honor somebody, you give them all this territory, all these things. But what he really said was public recognition. What he was saying was, I want the approval again of the king. He's searching for legitimacy. It's really for Haman a question of identity. That's why he's saying these things. He's trying to prove that he's valuable. He's trying to prove that he's enough. He's trying to say, notice me. Because Haman's thinking, if people see me paraded through the city, if people hear that the king, the most powerful person in the entire world at this moment, approves of me and loves me and honors me, then I will be valuable. We need someone we think the world of to think the world of us. And too often we try and find that value in things that never satisfy. You see, here's the thing though. Haman didn't really ask the wrong thing. He just asked it of the wrong king. He didn't ask for the wrong thing. He asked for it from the wrong king. But church, we have a king who speaks this value over us. Not because of who we are, but because of who he is. Jesus traded places with us so that when God looks at us, he sees us wearing the righteousness of Christ. In John chapter 17, Jesus prays a prayer for us. And in this prayer, he says this, I have given them the glory you gave me. And it's an interesting phrase, but Jesus is saying, God, I've given them, I've given us in this room the glory. And glory in this passage doesn't mean a glow. What it means literally is personal opinion. It means that when God looks at us, he feels the same way that he does when he looks at Jesus. Can you think about that? When God looks at us, he loves us the same way that he loves Jesus. Glory in this passage literally means value, honor, infinite, deep-rooted worth. This is what we need so that we won't be needy. This is what we need so that we don't have to drink from a fountain that never satisfies. This is what we need so that personal healing can begin in our lives. And to the point that we understand that Jesus did this specifically for us is the point to which we find freedom. That we can walk in freedom. Church, you have the approval of the only king that matters. You have the glory that he gave Jesus we get to wear that. 
That's who we are. That's where our value come from, comes from. We don't need to stare at ourselves all the time. When we understand that, we can walk in freedom. The second thing that God's been putting on my heart the past couple of weeks is just this phrase from the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done. I found myself praying a couple of weeks ago, God, I need you to do this for me. And God just kind of gently tapped me on the shoulder and said, it's not about you. It's not about your kingdom. It's about my kingdom. And then this phrase just kept running through my head. So I've been just praying this as a breath prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And maybe as you pause this week, you will continue to pray that. And lastly, and just simply, we've been talking for weeks about connecting the dots and telling the story. And maybe it's hard for you to see. And so I would say in the coming week, maybe over dinner, a meal, when you're hanging out with somebody over coffee, if you would just say, can you help me connect the dots in my life? Where do you see God's hand at work in my life? Church, we don't wanna be a people stuck staring at ourselves and missing the big picture, knowing that self-obsession will lead us to self-destruction. We wanna be a people who walk in freedom, knowing who we are and knowing God's fingerprints are all over our lives. Amen? Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for your word. I thank you for this story. I just love this narrative. I thank you that you're at work. I thank you that you're a God who's got a sense of humor, that you're a God who humbles the proud and exalts the humble. And so I thank you for your hand in this story. Forgive us for when we've been self-obsessed. Forgive us for when we think everything around us is all about us. And I pray that you would give us the courage to live for you. The courage to walk in your way. The courage to see your hand connecting the dots. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us on the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. We are a community of believers located in downtown Salem, Oregon, and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. If you have a request that we could pray for, please email us at prayers at salemalliance.org. If you'd like more information about this podcast or other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org.